This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. In this episode, we hear from a returning guest, Robert Salim Holbrook, who is the Executive Director of Abolitionist Law Center. I asked Salim to join me for this conversation now because the situation with COVID-19 in Pennsylvania state prisons and county jails is an emergency. And too many public officials, from county judges to state legislators to Governor Wolf, have failed to adequately address it. Salim and I talk about that, and we also talk about why people who are serving extreme sentences for crimes that occurred decades ago deserve the chance to live their later years on the outside. Why ALC has been particularly critical of the state victim advocate and the Pennsylvania Attorney General, and about Salim's personal journey from a teenager facing a death sentence to a leading voice on ending mass incarceration in the Commonwealth. ALC is one of ACLUPA's most trusted partners on prison reform issues. In fact, on the day that Salim and I talked, the Allegheny County Jail rescinded a policy that banned people who are incarcerated there from obtaining books from outside sellers. The repeal of the policy came one day after ALC, ACLUPA, and the Pennsylvania Institutional Law Project sent a letter to the warden explaining why the policy was unfair and unconstitutional. Let's hear from Salim Holbrook. This conversation was recorded on December 2nd. Well, Salim, great to have you on the podcast again, your second appearance uh, here on Speaking Freely. And, and now you're in a new job as executive director of the Abolitionist Law Center, one of uh, the ACLU's uh, key partners on prison and, and jail reform issues. I first want to give you the chance to talk about ALC. What's your mission? And, and over the long term, what are you hoping to achieve? Yeah, thank you, Andy. And it's always great to be on here with you. Abolitionist Law Center, our, our mission is decarceration and abolition. Um, though we have a strong emphasis on confronting and ending state violence, ending long-term solitary confinement, and more importantly, centering and building up the power of the people and communities most impacted by mass incarceration, police violence, and state violence as well as disenfranchisement because a lot of these communities the reasons why they lack power and the reasons why they are oppressed is because their collective power um, is not there it's not organized to respond and so we like to see ourselves in a role of not only advocating for people who are marginalized but also helping them build up the power to defend themselves I want to ask you about abolition, but I wonder if you could tease out that last thought a little bit. You know, you hear people talk about building power, but what does that mean like on a day-to-day -day basis? In what ways does ALC work with those communities to build the power? That's a good question. It all starts with base building, going back to that community organizing that a lot of movements have gotten away from. And that is organizing that is based on relationship, organizing that is based on areas of work, organizing also that is based on accountability. We have a lot of attorneys on staff, but we also have a lot of organizers on staff. And what we like to do, and I wish I had a better reference for this word, but I don't, so I'm gonna use it. What we like to do is we like to embed our community organizers within movements that share our values of abolition decarceration and building power for 
oppressed communities, we like to embed them within these movements to help increase the capacity of those movements to build their power and also to organize. So we look at ourselves as having a skill set that we can contribute and apply to these movements. And that term embed, you may remember when George Bush II invaded Iraq the second time, and he had the idea of embedding journalists within the military units. And the purpose of embedding them in those units was so that they would develop a camaraderie with the military units and not report critically about the war, right? So we use that term embed because that's what we like to do with our organizers. We like to embed them within movements that are struggling, whether it's struggling against state violence, whether it's struggling to decarcerate, whether it's struggling to abolish prisons or abolish police. We like to embed them with those movements to increase their capacity and also help them build their power. Yeah, and you cannot uh, underestimate the importance of that because sometimes organizations and they sell you I, I know has made this mistake at times, you know, you, you drop in when you need something, but the, the importance of the relationships just, it, it, it's so critical um, in, in making this work happen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, can you explain uh, prison abolition along with police abolition? It's a concept that has received renewed attention this year. Yeah. Um, and we've been hit up with a lot of requests and interviews and to talk about um, police and prison abolition. I mean, with a name like the Abolitionist Law Center, I like to let people know that that's not just a catchy uh, title for us. We are actually abolitionists. But I have to spend a lot of time not just defending abolition, but also explaining it because I think there's a misconception that prison abolition or police abolition is something that we are pursuing or think that is going to happen in the next budget cycle or in the next election cycle. And I like to tell people that's not going to happen. If, if you are in this because you want abolition to happen during the next budget cycle or you want abolition to happen during the next election cycle, then you're naive. Then you don't understand the historical movement that you are a part of because abolition is a historical movement it's a process, it's a protracted struggle. So when we're talking about and when we're advocating for prison abolition, we mean that, but we also understand that in order for us to get to that point for police abolition or prison abolition, we're gonna have to fundamentally change American society. You cannot have prison abolition and police abolition in American society. In order to do that, then that brings us to a very not difficult question, right? But it can be sometimes a disturbing or uncomfortable question. In order to accomplish that, we are going to have to abolish the social contract that has governed the United States since its, its exception. And that is, it has oppressed communities of color. Um, it has disproportionately punished communities of color. Communities of color, Black people are at the bottom indicator of every um, um, social uh, dynamic in the country, right? So we're gonna have to abolish all of that to clear the way for prison abolition and police abolition. And what we wanna see in its place when we talk about prison abolition is a prison, um, pardon me, what we wanna see is a system that is not designed to cage people we wanna see a system that is designed to heal the communities that are harmed 
while also holding those who commit harm accountable to those communities, right? And the same thing with police abolition. When police abolition to us does not mean that there will be no accountability for harm or crime in our community. What it means is that we will have an entire different system, um, for lack of a better word, and we don't even want to use the word police, but to make those communities safe, right? And so, because that's what we feel as though we need, because police, since, since its inception in the United States, has failed to protect our communities. Um, if you look at every major disturbance in the United States, going back 100 years, it has been because of policing, whether it was the 1992 riots in Los Angeles, whether it was the recent disturbances that rocked this country this summer, the summer of 2020, whether it was Liberty City in 1980 in Miami, whether it was the 1968 riots where 200 cities across the country rose up in urban rebellion in 1968. We could even go back to the, the riots of 1919, 100 years ago, which is so similar to the moment we're in where there is a global pandemic and a national uprising against police violence, right? In 1919, the United States was in the same situation. It was the red summer of 1919. Yep. Dozens of cities across the United States rose up because of white vigilante terrorism aided and abetted by police in the midst of the global uh, flu pandemic of 1990. So we've been in this situation before when it comes to police. And so when we're talking about police abolition, what we want to do is see, see a new system of making our community safe. I know everybody here at the ACLU appreciates the partnership with ALC. And the thing that I appreciate too is not just everything that you all stand for, but the fact that you know the ACLU is not an abolition organization, but our interests have so much overlap with ALC that you know it's it's a great partnership uh, between the two organizations because we're trying to get to a place where you know the use of incarceration is severely limited. You know we know you guys want to go further than that, which is fine. It's great, but there you know it, it's not like there is a requirement of perfection for either organization. That if if our interests aren't a hundred percent the same, they don't have to be. We can still make it a point to work together because we're trying to get to similar places. And I like to tell people too that decarceration is the first step to abolition, right? And ACLU is trying to decarcerate. What ACLU wants to do is bring the incarceration numbers down. That is decarceration. That is that is that convergence point that I believe that a lot of us can meet, even if you're not an abolitionist, right? And ironically, and I'm sure that you find this too, you see some people on the other side of the aisle who want to get to that point. Um, so I'm interested in, in seeking and finding those convergence points. And I know that this is uh, personal for you as well because of your own his history and your own biography. Tell us a little bit about your story. How did you end up, you're, you're a formerly incarcerated person. How did that happen? And, and how does that experience inform what you do now? Um, well, I mean, it forms a lot of what I do now. I would like to say a lot of what I do now comes from a lot of the lessons that my mother and my father raised me with. Um, coming up, you know, my mother was, you know, a, a very strong anti-apartheid uh, activist. She was also very involved in student protests during the 60s. I remember my mother telling me stories of when they had the People's Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in the early 70s, members of the Black Panther Party 
stayed at her college apartment at Temple University. So I came up in a home that valued progressive and radical politics. Unfortunately, like a lot of youth in the 80s, I got swept up into the drug culture, the drug game in my neighborhood. Um, I deviated from the values that I came up with in my home, like a lot of us did. Um, I like to tell people, you know, where I grew up in North Philly, you know, the values that we were raised with were not the values that we took to the streets, to the corners. If anything, we deviated from those values in our homes and embraced the values of the street. And when I say the street, I'm talking about the drug culture. And that is what led us to the path of incarceration. Myself, that is what got me at the age of 16 years old involved in a, in a violent homicide that took the life of an innocent person from my community. And I was sentenced to spend the rest of my life in prison for, for being a lookout to that offense. It's something that I've lived with every day of my life since then. I served 27 years in prison for that. And that's, I, I was very fortunate that a movement brought me home, right? Because there were some people who believed that sentencing children to spend the rest of their life in prison was an appropriate response to their offenses when it when it's not you know children are not developed children are children i i hate to even like just having to explain this just brings to mind the irony of all this of me being 16 years old in the court facing a death sentence right hearing the state talking about look we're moving to execute this child who is not a child, mind you, right? So they don't look at me as a child. And just being in that courtroom, like to this day, I just realized like, it, it's just mind boggling that these discussions were going on where my humanity was stripped from me, who I was as an individual was stripped from me, listening to the prosecutor talk in like almost tongues. It, it, it seemed like a foreign language, like, well, he's not a child, he's an adult. But then when I go back to the youth study center, I can't smoke cigarettes, right? Because they was like, no, you're, you're, you're a child. You can't smoke cigarettes. I remember one time my father, you know, my father being my father brought me a Playboy magazine, put it in my care package, right? <laughs> and brought it upstairs and the guards are looking at it and was like, what's this? They was like, you can't have this. This is pornography. You're 16 years old. And I'm like, yo, dude, the state is trying to kill me, man. Like, what are you talking about? Like, just those ironies, right? And so, you know, I was fortunate that the United States Supreme Court brought some, some common sense back to the judicial system in the United States and said, wait a minute, they are children. We have a duty to treat them like children. And because of that ruling, Miller versus Alabama, I was eligible to be resentenced. And I think that one of the powerful things about the Miller versus Alabama ruling is that that ruling said that children are not incorrigible. Children have capacity for change. And in my case, and in the case of hundreds of others from Pennsylvania who were sentenced to life without parole as children, that decision was validated in those courtrooms. When we came down and the judges were able to see who we have become in spite of prison, we were released in mass in Pennsylvania. And I mean, I don't even want to call it an experiment anymore because over 
180, close to 200 people who were sentenced to spend the rest of their life in prison as children have been released to the city of Philadelphia. And we have less than a 1% recidivism rate, right? Right. We're doing great out here. And that is a perfect example that people can change, not just children. Yeah. Um, so one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on today is to talk about what is certainly one of the most urgent issues facing people in prisons and jails right now, uh, and their loved ones for that matter, and that's the spread of COVID-19. Um, as we talk today, what can you tell us about how the pandemic is impacting people in prisons and jails in Pennsylvania? I could tell you that right now at this moment, it is raging through the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. It is out of control. Since October 15th, 20 people have died in Pennsylvania state prisons from COVID-19. Prior to that, it was only 15, right? So from March till October, 15 people died. From October 15th till now, 20 people died. So it is raging right now in the Department of Corrections and the response we are seeing is no response within the DOC. And that is really frustrating to us. I feel, I'm not feel, I'm gonna just be straight. We are very disappointed with Governor Wolf's failure to use reprieve at this moment. And Governor Wolf, I've, I've met him and I, I would like to say he's a good man, right? Like genuinely like meeting him, he is a, comes off as a good person it would really be unfortunate that his legacy is going to be the failure to act at this moment to exert his leadership and get on top of what's going on in Pennsylvania's prisons and start releasing people with his executive power because he has it and he hasn't used it. And at the Abolitionist Law Center, us along with the ACLU, Amistad Law Project have been advocating decarceration at this moment, starting with vulnerable populations and seniors. The governor had the ability to reprieve 1600 people. Now I know that the governor powers were limited by the mass incarceration lobby, right? Which was very unfortunate. The office of the victim advocate under Jennifer Storm, a former victim advocate, Jennifer Storm, and also the Pennsylvania District Attorneys Association, as well as some uh, members of the Republican um, legislature prevented reprieve from applying to people who have long-term prison sentences. And this is where it's really unfortunate because this group of prisoners are the ones that's most vulnerable. These prisoners who are in their 60s and their 70s who have been in prison 30 and 40 years are being deprived of the opportunity to be released. These prisoners have the lowest recidivism rate. This is not my opinion. This is not my politics. This is data. This is math. Math doesn't lie. <laughs> prisoners in, in the 60s and 70s have the lowest recidivism rates when they're released, but they can't be released. And, and that's really unfortunate. And now the prison that is Pennsylvania Department's nursing home, right? Senior home has over half of its population 
tested positive for COVID. Three prisoners have died there in, in the past month. This is the prison that houses the entire geriatric population of Pennsylvania, the entire vulnerable population. Governor Wolf cannot reprieve, well, actually Governor Wolf can reprieve these prisoners, right? If he exercises his absolute leadership at this moment that he has. And that's something that we're advocating for him to do at right now at this moment. Another thing, and this is important because I, I like to be proactive talking about this. It appears that there's going to be a vaccine on the horizon that's coming down soon, right? Mm -hmm. The CDC issued guidelines that, that healthcare providers and people in like long-term um, residential facilities are going to be first in line uh, for that vaccine. We're going to be advocating that people in prisons also be first part of that priority at the top of that list because they are long-term facilities, right? They have communities that congregate together in large number and live together in large numbers. So along with, with, with seniors facilities, we're gonna be advocating that prisons and jails also be in that top tier when the vaccines come to Pennsylvania and that this is the decision that states have. States have the autonomy to, de to determine that priority order. And we are going to be demanding that state prisons and jails be at the top of that list for those vaccines in Pennsylvania. We're also going to be advocating for Governor Wolf to use his executive reprieve power for prisoners serving long-term prison sentences. One prisoner in particular right now is Russell Schultz, 77 years old, has been in prison since 1971. Not only is he battling stage four cancer, but he has COVID-19. He should be released. He is a candidate for release. He presents no threat to our communities and we are gonna be advocating for his release. So that is someone that we would like to see the governor use his reprieve power. Give this man the dignity to go home. And I hate to use this term, but die with his family, right? Because there's no dignity in death in prison. And a lot of the people that we are advocating that the governor use his reprieve power are people who don't have long left to live, right? And that's what we want to see the governor do. Exercise some compassion here. Exercise some leadership here. You can do this. And the people will be behind you for this. You know, the people will be back this. Yeah, there's a lot. So I, I want to make a couple of notes here. One, the, the prison you were talking about where a lot of the elder prisoners are is um, SCI, Laura Highlands. Laura Highlands, sorry. Right, okay. Um, you know, the governor's reprieve program in the spring, the DOC identified approximately 12,000 people in the population who met the CDC's definition of medically vulnerable to COVID-19. And, and you, you, you made a point about the fact that the reprieve program the governor implemented um, had a very narrow definition of who could even qualify. It was about 1,600, as you said. And then to this day, the approximate number is all it's less than 200 people that have actually yeah. been released and it's a reprieve program where it doesn't actually commute your sentence mm -hmm. um you're out for a temporary period of time with conditions mm -hmm. um and you're people could ultimately end up going back unless there's some kind of legal intervention um yeah. in the interim so it's just it's it, it seems like as you're saying it was just a huge 
a wasted opportunity and a wasted opportunity that's putting people in danger. You know, the, the death rate for people in prisons to COVID-19 um, has been three to five times higher than the general population over the course of, of the pandemic. Yeah, you're right. Um, and and th- this actually segues well to another thing I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, these issues and, and some of the policy pushes that are going on uh, around issues that impact lifers. You know, that discussion has included advocating for expanding Pennsylvania's compassionate release law. You know, that law, there is a law right now, but it's extremely narrow. Basically, a doctor has to sign off and say, this person will die within a matter of months. Um, There's also been a push on reform to the pardons board. And I know ultimately, of course, the goal for your organization, for ours, is getting rid of life without parole altogether or death by incarceration, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so make the case for those, for those policy ideas. You've, you've already started, obviously, but I'd okay. like to, if you could pull on some of those a little more. I think the first point here is that this is about public safety for us, right? I think that people think that, you know, we don't take public safety, we don't take people's concerns into mind when we make these decisions, right? So when we're talking about ending death by incarceration, when we're talking about ending life without parole, expanding compassionate relief, expanding commutation, the governor using his reprieve power, we are talking about a population of prisoners who have been in prison for decades. We are talking about a population of prisoner who on average are over the age of 45, right? More than half of the people serving life without parole sentences in Pennsylvania are over the age of 45, right? This population, if released, has the lowest recidivism rates of all prisoners based on age because you age out of crime, right? This is, again, this is the data. So what we are saying is that in order for us to decarcerate, in order for us to use the state's resources to deal with harm in our communities and even to help rehabilitate prisoners, right? We need to release prisoners who have been in prison for 25, 30, 40, and 50 years who no longer present a threat to our community, who have been very importantly, and this is very important, who have been held accountable for their offenses, right? We're not saying like, don't hold people accountable. Like someone who has been in, in prison for 40 years has been held accountable. These prisoners would go through a process where they would need to get the approval of the Department of Corrections to be released, right? This is the population of prisoners that we are advocating for. And it just makes sense. I don't like to use the term smart on crime because I I hate catchy slogans and all that, right? (laughs) But this is a smart strategy. It is a smart platform to decarcerate because everyone on both sides of the aisles recognizes that we have a problem with mass incarceration in this country. And you should start with these prisoners. Again, they have been in prison for decades. They present the lowest recidivism rates. If you look at New York, which has parole for lifers, California has parole for lifers. California has released 6,000 prisoners who were sentenced to life in prison. And they have like less than a 2% recidivism rate. You know. So for us, we feel as though that, you know, this is backed by data, it's backed by scientists, and we feel as though that there needs to be a, a stronger public education push on this, because I think that, you know, people 
just really aren't aware of this are these numbers, right? They aren't aware of like, there's people in prison who have been there for 40 and 50 years or in their 60s and 70s. Like what purpose is it serving to still have these people in prison? Even guards and prison wardens, you know, say this, like this, this person is not giving us problems. This person is not going to be a problem if you release them into our communities. So you mentioned Jennifer Storm, and I have noticed over the last few years that ALC has not been afraid to call out public officials by name. Uh, along with Jennifer Storm, uh, the organization has also been particularly critical of Josh Shapiro, the state attorney general. Um, I want to start with Storm, because since you've mentioned her already, she's the now former victim advocate. Uh, her nomination was just voted down um, for her nomination for a second term was voted down by the state Senate. What were the major criticisms um, that you had of her tenure as victim advocate? Yeah, I mean, I want to make it clear that like, for us, it was, it's not a thing about like, um, taking, put, having a stake in um, Jennifer Storm's future or, or, or like endorsing or not endorsing Jennifer Storm personally. For us, it was about her performance and her performance in that office. The problem with Jennifer Storm was Jennifer Storm was more interested in being a lobbyist for mass incarceration and retribution than an advocate for communities that are harmed by violence and also by mass incarceration. That was the problem with Jennifer Storm. She was just too content, too comfortable in her role as a lobbyist. And that is not what the victim's advocate is supposed to be. She's transformed that office into a lobby for the mass incarceration block. And it came back to bite her. Now, I, 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 want, I, I hate to even lead with this, but it's like you have to in this political climate that we're at where, weapon, where victims are weaponized, right? I'm someone who went to prison for at the age of 16 years old being involved in a homicide. But I'm also someone who lost two cousins, two family members in one year to gun violence in Germantown in Philadelphia. So I, I speak on both sides of this issue. And the problem with Jennifer Storm is that communities that suffer, that suffer on both sides of violence and mass incarceration in our communities were not considered victims to her. Whether it was in Philadelphia, whether it was in Homewood, uh, Pittsburgh, whether it was in Chester, whether it was in Allentown, she did not view us or our communities as victims. Um, she referred to mothers in charge as a liberal group, right? Dismiss mothers in charge as a victims group because right. mothers in charge understands that the mothers in our communities who have lost sons and daughters to violence have also lost sons and daughters to mass incarceration, right? But Jennifer Storm dismisses these mothers as liberals and would rather cater to a vengeance lobby, would rather cater to a mass incarceration lobby. And victims in Philadelphia and across the state who are on both sides were like, wait a minute, where are we at in this conversation, yeah. right? You don't want to take our concerns into consideration. You want to stand and impede any type of criminal justice reform in Pennsylvania and, and, and dare use our pain 
as a, a buffer to that reform. No, we're not, we're not gonna allow that. And I'm speaking right now as someone who lost loved ones to homicide, not as the executive director of Abolitionist Law Center. That is the visceral response that, that people have in Philadelphia and across the state at that. And I just really find it really karma that the same way she weaponized victims against us, when we came out and said people who have been in prison for decades, all we're asking for is them to have an opportunity to show that they're not the person that they were. When we said that, she said, you guys are defending murderers. You guys are, you know, disrespecting the victims, people who have lost their loved ones, right? right. When she did that with people who had power, when she did that to the Republican that she, the Republicans that she had no problem pulling with against us, when she weaponized the victims of, of church abuse against them, they responded and she suffered the consequences of that. And, and she deserves that. That's what's called just desserts. I support that in her case. I think this is one case where um, I feel as though the offender cannot be rehabilitated. There's very few people on, on my list with that. And Jennifer Storm is one of them because of her positions on that. Well, so the victim advocate is a job that if I'm not mistaken, I think that's a six year term and it can carry from one governor to another. It's not like a cabinet position where as soon as the governor leaves, the, the person leaves with them. So Governor Wolf has an opportunity here. So let's imagine that Governor Wolf or one of his advisors is listening to this mm -hmm. and you've, you've, you've kind of gotten to it already, but I want to put a pin on it. What would be the ideal candidate for state victim advocate? What would that person's resume look like? I would say that the first thing is that I, I believe that victims do not want and, I, and that, that that office should not do is it should not be a lobbyist office, mm. right? And that the office should not be an office that feels as though it has to stand in the way of criminal justice reform, right? It should be an office that is committed and dedicated to serving victims of the Commonwealth. And when we say serving them, we don't mean weaponizing them to pull them out to hearings against legislation. We mean offering them trauma-informed services, right? We want to make sure that victims have someone that will be there for them in Philadelphia, in communities of color. We want more funding to go to more grassroots organizations who are working on both sides of the issue, who understand that within our communities, it's not offender and victim. This weaves through our communities. So we would want someone that would be sensitive to that. And I would advise Governor Wolf and his advisors to establish an advisory committee made up of mothers in charge from Philadelphia, victims from across the Commonwealth, to be a, not only a part of this process, but to co-govern with the next victim advocate. Because unfortunately, the requirements for the ne next victim's advocate are so narrow that there's not going to be a lot of people eligible. I mean, we would love to see the executive director of Mothers in Charge in Philadelphia, Dr. Dorothy uh, Johnson, in that position. But I, she, she doesn't have a law degree. You have to have a law degree in order to be in that position. But she's someone that that office should consult with. Um, so we would like to see that office actually serve victims. Get out of the lobbying business, because I can assure you that 
if that the next person who goes in there, if they want to be a lobbyist, we're going to be at your front door. People who have are victims in this Commonwealth who do not want to see that office office be a lobbyist. We are we are going to be at your front door and do not stand in the way of criminal justice reform. And your point about the the victim advocate now has to be a lawyer is important because that just happened within the last six months. Um, it was a change that the legislature made. It was initially an underhanded way to get at Jennifer Storm, who's not a lawyer, and then the state Senate actually ended up voting down her nomination altogether, but that requirement is still in place. Mm -hmm. um, so the person does have to be a lawyer, which obviously severely narrows who could serve in that position. Speaking of lawyers, uh, I want to ask you about Attorney General Josh Shapiro as well. You were just quoted in a recent article in The Appeal about his record so far as AG. He was just reelected uh, in this most recent election. Um, that piece in the appeal was comparing criminal justice records of Shapiro and Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. Now, Shapiro markets himself as a progressive, but that has not been your take as an advocate to end mass incarceration. How has Shapiro fallen short on criminal legal issues? Well, wow, first Jennifer Storm and now Shapiro. Andy, you're, you're going <laughs> to get me in trouble, man. Well, actually, I've, I've been in trouble, so. <laughs> in for, in for uh, what is it? In for a penny, penny in for a pound or something like that? Well, actually, before you answer, let me say why I'm asking this. I have been noticing that it does seem like activists are getting more engaged in the electoral process in a way that I have not seen before. Like the Sunrise Movement is a great example where, you know, the old school way was you stayed in your lane of advocating on your issue. And you didn't really you didn't really say much about these public officials. Yeah. Um, and it I mean, seems like there's it seems like there's a change now in activism where folks are realizing that hey, advocacy and electoral politics are intertwined with each other. Absolutely. And, yeah. And so, I mean, let me be very clear that um, I'm not taking a position on like endorsing Fetterman or Shapiro. I'm. This is just based on observation of their records of their performance. Um, so I do want to make that clear that I'm not endorsing uh, Fetterman over Shapiro um, or vice versa. I'm just giving an assessment as someone who has been battling mass incarceration of an assessment of their performances. Yeah. Um, Josh Shapiro's performance has been disappointing for, um, for us, specifically his performance on the board of partisan commutation. The purpose of commutation is not to relitigate a case. The purpose of commutation is not to give victims a veto over commutation. The purpose of commutation is to make a determination. Is the applicant who is seeking commutation, and for lifers in Pennsylvania, commutation is the only way that they have to be released right now. It is to make the determination, this person who has been in prison 30, 40, or 50 years, one, have they taken accountability for their offense? Are they a threat to the community? Do they have the support of the Department of Corrections, right? Josh Shapiro, when applicants who have come up that have, ha have met all of these criterias, he has denied their release. And 
in good conscience, I can't praise him for that. That is not only a dereliction of duty on his, his part, because he's a member of the board of, of pardons, right? But it reveals that he's being guided by something other than justice, whether it's his ambitions to be the next governor, to be the next senator, to be the next president. Um, I don't know, but I know that the process that he is using in commutation hearings is not the process that should be used. And for that, he has to be criticized. Another area that really upset a lot of people was when he moved to take the jurisdiction from Larry Krasner for offenses in Philadelphia involving firearms. You know, he said publicly that, hey, I didn't have anything to do with that. But it turned out from a right to know freedom of information request that he actually was in communication with some of those Republicans who were trying to strip District Attorney Larry Krasner of that jurisdiction in Philly. For us, someone from Philadelphia, I don't like that, right? Because my thing is we voted for Larry Krasner to be our district attorney in Philadelphia. We didn't vote for Josh Shapiro to be our district attorney, right? right? And as Philadelphia, as a city that is constantly under siege from state Republicans who are trying to strip our autonomy and decision-making process, right? Whether it was the school board in the 80s, whether it's the parking authority, I mean, they're, they're constantly gunning for Philadelphia to see this, this, the attorney general involved in that process also was something that upset a lot of people because for us, it was like a crash political ploy. So Shapiro's performance right there really made him a lot of enemies in Philadelphia around commutations and around his move to strip District Attorney Larry Krasner of jurisdiction over gun offenses in Philadelphia. Because it's like Krasner is prosecuting people for guns in Philadelphia. Like he, he is doing that. There's people in bail with high bail offenses because they had gun cases, gun offenses. So the I, you know, this was not based on a failure of Krasner to act in these cases. It was based on political opportunism that guided that. That's one problem. And then the other thing about um, Shapiro is that he just doesn't come off genuine. He doesn't come off as a genuine person when it comes to decisions he makes. And he has been governing as a status quo attorney general. He has really not taken any strong positions on criminal justice reform in Pennsylvania. We have not heard him advocate or say that he supports parole for lifers, second chances for lifers. We have not heard him come out more about compassionate release. He set up a conviction integrity unit about last year, but it has released no one. From what I'm hearing is that it's it, it hasn't really investigated any cases. So his performance when it comes to criminal justice reform, which I, I, I can only judge him on as someone who's involved in that field, has just not lived up to that of a progressive attorney general or an attorney general who wants to bring about some substantive change to a very flawed and racist and class-based uh, criminal justice system that in this moment, that's what people want to see. Yeah. And I would add, as someone who lobbied the legislature for a long time, you know, it would be nice to see Attorney General Shapiro spend some of that political capital in the legislature advocating for real reform, 
um, to end mass incarceration and opposing expansion of mass incarceration. Absolutely. Now, I say that with a caveat that I haven't been lobbying since he started as attorney general. I knew him when he was in the state house. But I know, having watched the DAs and previous attorneys general and the way they lobby, that the attorney general's office can have a lot of sway in the legislature. And I'm not aware that Attorney General Shapiro has used that political capital on yeah. ending mass incarceration. No, he hasn't. And I mean, just going back to his performance in the Board of Pardons, he likes to say that I voted for more commutations than all of my predecessors in the last, I think, 25 years or 30 years, right? Well, of course, that was easy because commutation was dead. Commutation was shut down for 25 years, right? So right. that's not a high bar to say that you voted for more commutations than all of your predecessors when in the past 25 years um, prior to, to Governor Wolf, I think like only seven people were released on commutation. It might've been nine. So, so there's not a high bar there for you to, for, to tout. What we wanna see you do is release people who are eligible for release based on being rehabilitated, based on community safety. And when I say community safety, I'm not talking about looking at the offense that they did 30 or 40 years ago, right? Because that would have not gotten me out. Right. You have to look at the person they have become in those 30 years. And that is what we are asking for Shapiro to do. And more importantly, and this is something that we held Jennifer Storm to account for, do not weaponize victims. Don't drag victims into that process and give them a veto power over your decision. That's something important too. There's been a history since the mid 90s of people getting majority votes from the pardons board for a commutation, but because life and death sentences have to be unanimous, um, there have been multiple cases where one vote kept a person from getting that recommendation. I mean, going back before Miller, you had people who were juvenile lifers themselves who similar situation to yours, they were, they were aging, you know, men in their 50s or even older who couldn't get that recommendation because of that unanimous requirement. Um, and that puts a, a lot of power in the hands of the attorney general and, and, and the other members of the board for that Absolutely. matter. Can I give you an example there? Sure. Douglas Hollis served 35 years in prison. He went to prison as a juvenile, as a child. He was denied commutation nine times, right? I think seven times because of that unanimous decision. The man went up for parole and got parole on his first parole hearing mm -hmm. because they looked at, at his record and said, man, you should have been home 20 years ago, right? He's been home for close to three years now. The man mentors at-risk youth in Harrisburg, right? He goes to church. I mean, this man, this is the man that you would want to live next door to, Yeah. right? He's married, he has a family. He was denied commutation eight times because of the unanimous vote process. He could have been home contributing to our communities 20 years ago if that unanimous vote process was not in place. It did nothing to help our communities 
And you know what even makes it really ironic, and I hurt, hate to even bring this person's name into the conversation. The first time Douglas Hollis was denied commutation, do you know who Governor Casey chose over him? Reginald McFadden. I was just going to say Reginald McFadden, yeah. And for folks who don't know the history, Reginald McFadden then went on to commit another violent crime, and that is sometimes cited as the reason why Mark Single lost the 1994 gubernatorial race to Tom Ridge. It is. And everyone in prison said that Reginald McFadden should not have been released. Even staff. The only reason he was released was because he was an informant. That's what got him over more worthy candidates because he was a prison informant. Um, and he is the one person in the hundreds of prisoners who received commutation. He is the one person that committed another violent offense. And that shut commutation down for over two decades in Pennsylvania because of that. But and Douglas Hollis, someone that when the parole board released him, they said, man, you should have been out of here a long time ago. He was skipped over for Reginald McFadden. And the unanimous requirement was passed in the aftermath of yep. Reginald McFadden and the 1994 gubernatorial election. Yep. So, uh, Salim, uh, to wrap up, if folks want to learn more about Abolitionist Law Center, where can they go? Um, they could just find us on social media at abolitionistlawcenter.com. Um, they can find us on Instagram under Abolitionist Law Center. Um, we're on Twitter. So, you know, our work is out there. Um, you know, just look us up. Um, I hope people are inspired by our work or moved by our work. And, you know, I hope that people would help support our work by becoming a sustainer and donating to our work because, you know, the level of advocacy we do is, is not often funded and, you know, having monthly sustainers and having donations could be very uh, helpful to, for us to sustain that work. So we, we appreciate that. And, you know, we appreciate everyone who was in this fight with us, including the ACLU too. Well, I'm glad you made that pitch because I am a monthly donor and I know <laughs> from being around nonprofit work, knowing like that X number of dollars that's coming in every month is, is, a, is very helpful when you're budgeting. And, and speaking of budgeting, you all are about to, you're doing some hiring right now as well. Yeah, we just set up a C4 called Straight Ahead Organization um, that is going to be leading a campaign against death by incarceration in Pennsylvania and, and will also be advocating for geriatric parole for seniors, for people who have been in prison for decades or in, and in their 60s and 70 years old. So we're very excited about that. We're hiring for a communications director. We're going to be hiring for a campaigns director, organizers, um, a policy advocate. So for people out there who are interested, please just look up, up, look up straight ahead on Medium. Um, also look up hirings on our, our website, Abolitionist Law Center. So we're, we're very excited to be building out. And Andy, we are very excited to be having someone join you up there in Harrisburg to do <laughs> some of that hardcore lobbying that is going to be needed to decarcerate Pennsylvania. All right, Celine, thanks so much. It's always great to catch up with you. Yeah, thank you too, Andy. That's Robert Salim Holbrook, Executive Director of Abolitionist Law Center. Find ALC online at abolitionistlawcenter.org. And they are on the various social media platforms with the handle at abolitionistlc. That brings episode 53 to a close. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. 
Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover, the host, writer, and director of this podcast. Until next time, be healthy and be free. Thank you.